step by step on this discourse of the um, great discourse on causation, we've come to the next one, which says, Buddha says, Ananda, if one is asked, is existence due to a specific condition, one should say, it is. If one is asked, through what condition is there existence, one should say, with clinging as condition, there is existence. Now, obviously, that appears to be a very small reason for existence, but actually, that's all there is. <coughs> Clinging is the specific condition for rebirth consciousness. If we weren't clinging, we couldn't have that consciousness which brings us to birth again. And if you translate that into your daily life, where the next morning is your rebirth, just check it out tomorrow morning. What are you clinging to? And the list is probably fairly long. But the only thing that really matters is I'm clinging to being here, to me. And that is the underlying reason for all the other clingings. And the other clingings are divided by the Buddha into five parts. And the first one is a firm grasping at sense pleasures. Now that clinging that we have, this grasping for sense pleasures and then trying to hang on to them is one of the outcomes of the clinging to this person wanting to be here because we don't want it unpleasant, obviously. We want it pleasant. So the two go hand in hand. If there is a clinging to me, there also has to be a clinging for sense pleasures. And this clinging at the sense pleasures is a very um, a difficult situation because they don't last. Now, if you examine that for a moment, the nicest thing that we get to the, through the senses, it can't last. The taste of chocolate, ice cream, chips, how long does it last? A hot bath, when you're cold, how long can you stay in there? A sight, something nice to see, sunset, sunrise, snow on the mountains, how long? How long does it last? But the clinging to that makes us want to repeat it and also makes us regret when it goes away. And because we are quite understanding of the fact that we can't eat chocolate constantly, we get it again. If we happen to like chocolate, maybe you don't like chocolate, so maybe herring or whatever it may be. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. We know we can't carry on like that. But because we know that, we are quite accepting of the fact 
that we have to get it again. So we do that. We get it again. And then if it's something really important that we're clinging to, then we become very regretful, very sad if it goes away. And this is why I've been saying over and over again, and keep on saying over and over again, if you do the jhanas, after you finish, first thing, that too is impermanent. Whatever it may be, the most pleasant thing in the world, it's impermanent. And this is why everything is dukkha. The whole world is dukkha. Because even the most pleasant thing disappears. And then, of course, our difficulty lies in the fact that we try to regenerate it and get it back. And because that is difficult, we have to expend energy and time, and then it disappears again. We are on a sort of a constant search, and not only a constant search, but it's a constant anxiety. Are we going to get it back again? And then next time when we get it back, are we going to be a little cleverer about it? Can we keep whatever it is a little longer? Of course, we can't, because the senses are just not made that way. Neither touch, nor smell, nor taste, nor sight, nor hearing. None of them are made that way that we can keep it longer. But we think if we're clever enough, Next time we'll do it. And we are intelligent, so we're going to figure a way out to do it. But the only way that anybody's ever figured out to do it is to get them back in as quick succession as possible. All anybody's ever been able to figure out. So there's always a lapse in between those sense pleasures. Now, anyone who doesn't meditate or meditates poorly knows no other pleasure except through the senses. Because the mind is also one of the senses, and so we can think up stories. So we only know that. Now, good meditation brings other pleasure. But that's too impermanent. That too doesn't last. Because even if we do the highest and best jhanas, we can't walk around with them. The minute we get up, that's it. Finished. Of course. There's a cushion from them. There's a residual effect. The most important one being that we no longer are convinced that we can get it through our senses. That's the most important residual effect of the jhanas. We know for a fact that the senses are a poor substitute for pleasure. And actually we also know then for absolute certainty that they are not made for that. Although they will give pleasure again and again, it's not their function. Yet, the human nature is made that way because of our idea that there's somebody there who should have it nice. That's why we go after them. Now, that's only one of these five um, difficulties that we have to sorry four difficulties that's not as bad as I thought it was <laughs> that are connected to clinging we'll get to five difficulties in a moment first we'll have four uh, the other three are our wrong view and they are of course the cause for this searching for the sense pleasure and the wrong view the Buddha divides up into three different wrong views 
And the most important one is, of course, the self-delusion, and which gives rise to everything, gives rise to wrong views and gives rise also to our adherence to opinions and modes of behavior and conduct which is almost ritualistic. And if we examine ourselves at more depth, we will see that we have certain types of behavior and certain types of reactions which we fall back into over and over again. And there's no reason for them. They are only habit. And they're habit because it's been ingrained in us from the time that we have been observing what goes on around us. So it is very important, actually, to check one's habits and to check a whole day of habits. What am I doing with my time? Am I using it to the best possible advantage? Presumably, in a course that's happening. But what about one's daily life? Are there all sorts of things done in the course of a day which could just as well be left undone? which are of no importance whatsoever, they are either due to habit, they are due to a belief in them, which doesn't have any basis for it, or they are only done in order to pass the time. And if we can find that, then maybe we could be helped by recognizing how short our life is and how we could make every day count, because we never know whether it isn't the last one. We have this ingrained idea that we're going to be here a long time. Well, who promised us that? Nobody gets born with a little guarantee, uh, warranty uh, ticket, which says warranty for 50 or 60 or 80 years. Nobody gets that. In fact, it's totally impossible to have even a guess at it. So if we can look at our habits uh, in our daily lives and sort out whether we're using this very precious human life to the best advantage, we will find that we've got lots of time because um, quite a lot of it is not being used properly. And that is another way which happens because of this delusion that there's somebody there it's all based on that one thing, that there's somebody there that has to comply with certain ideas of who one is and who other people think one is. What other people think about one is actually of no concern whatsoever, but we are very concerned. We are extremely concerned. And being extremely concerned about what other people think of us, make us makes us often do things or even attempt to do things which are totally unnecessary, either to comply with their idea of us or to change their idea of us, make it look better. It's all built up on that same delusion. So the other um, problem which we have, not only that, but our opinions, our viewpoints, built up on that self-delusion our viewpoints and opinions, which we have taken from where? 
from parents and teachers, from friends and peers, from media, from uh, books, uh, from uh, thoughts which we've had and which we have believed. All those views and opinions which we carry around with us make it very difficult to see absolute truth because they fill that space of mind that we have to all its farthest corners and there's nothing left to get something new in. The Buddha said that views and opinions are the greatest handicap that we um, have in order to see absolute truth. And absolute truth is, of course, totally different from what we have as our relative truth right now. So this views and opinions could be also very worthwhile to check. What do I have exact views and opinions about? Who I am, who I want to be, who my neighbors are, who the people around me are, how the world functions, how the universe functions, how it should function, how the government should function, how people should talk to each other. What do I have opinions and views about? It's very worthwhile to actually write that down and then check it out and see, where do I get this from? Is this a really correct view? How do I know it's correct? Who told me? Or do I just believe it? And if we can chuck them all, we'd be very lucky. Hardly anybody can do that. But maybe get rid of a few. Make a bit of room in there. Have it open so that something new can come in. It's the one thing, if it's too strong, which makes it impossible to change to the point where the change is significant. That's what a meditator is after, to change. And obviously, we are able to change, because if you just watch your mind for a moment, you can see it changes all the time. So obviously, we can change. It's not, and it should be quite easy, shouldn't it? If we could just take a meditative experience and see the change of mind that goes on there, it should be very easy to change one's mind. But it isn't, unfortunately. Because although the mind jumps around, like we usually say, like a monkey in treetops, from here to there, unless it gets really concentrated, we can't change that easily. Because we have to realize that the old stuff that we're carrying around is unnecessary baggage. So that's a very important investigation into oneself. And seeing we've got lots of time here, investigate your own viewpoints. And write them down if you're that way inclined. And see whether they're based on anything that's really absolutely true. Sometimes when one has viewpoints, we also find, of course, that it's very easy to get into arguments because the other person has other viewpoints. So arguments also are very often based on our firmly held and dearly beloved viewpoints. And also, if it's too strong, there's an enormous resistance 
to change. And that enormous resistance translates into the same resistance in meditation. If it's very difficult to get concentrated, that's the same resistance that we have to changing our viewpoints. So we can uh, investigate that too. This self-delusion, which is the basis and then generates the desire for sense pleasure, generates views and opinions and generates our habits and observances, is also the generator for our karma making. I explained that yesterday when I talked about karma, that all our karma making is based upon this fact that there's somebody there doing good or bad. And the more viewpoints we have, the more we are restricted in that very small area of what we think is right and wrong, the more restricted we also are in our karma-making because we don't leave ourselves wide open to experience the new or to experiment. Experimentation is one part of meditation because we experiment with the mind to do something entirely different from what is usually done. Usually it's just been thinking. Now this is totally different. So it's an experiment and it needs courage. And if we are hanging on to our views and opinions, to our habits and observances, we can't do that. So it's all bound up also with our meditation. The more we are attached to these things, the more difficult it becomes. If we can see our viewpoints and opinions with a half smile and look at them and say, well, I've got this one, but if something better comes along, I'll change it. That's a very good way of looking at it. But if we think that we are that, what the view and the opinion proclaims, we're really stuck. Now I want to read you a verse out of the commentaries, which says, The succession of aggregates, well, in English it's not a verse, in Pali it was a verse. The succession succession of aggregates, elements and sense bases, continuing uninterrupted, that is called samsara. Now, this is a very important statement. It doesn't rhyme at all, but in Pali it does. (laughs) And this is what clinging is all about. Yes. The succession of aggregates, but I'll explain it all. Elements and sense bases, continuing uninterrupted, that is called samsara. I'll explain the whole thing. I don't expect you to understand this just off the bat. Samsara is the round of birth and death. And that's a Pali word for it but it's a very short and succinct word, so it's easy to use. And samsara is that what is depicted on that picture on the wall, the round from ignorance to death and starting all over again, which is this dependent arising, which is what we're talking about. And samsara means that it is within all types of existence. 
not necessarily only human. Okay, so that is called samsara. Now the first thing that is said here is the succession of aggregates. Now the aggregates are called in Pani the pancha upadana kandas. Pancha is five. Upadana is clinging. And kandas are aggregates. And I have mentioned them already several times, but here they really become important. They are the five aggregates of clinging. And the aggregates is a word to depict the five elements or the five bits and pieces which constitute a human being. And this is the easiest division that we can find, just five. So the first one is the body, and that's easy enough. There's a body here. So the body is referred to here as the elements. Now, I gave you already some instruction for the method of becoming aware of those elements. Now, I'm going to repeat that here because it's an, all of these things are directed towards loosening this hardened view of self, getting it a little bit less total and less uh, believable. Now, obviously, when we sit here with this body on a pillow, that is called me. But if we break it up into the elements, we may have a little more doubt about it. And that's what we're after. We have to start doubting this me, this personality. We have to start doubting the fact that there's really somebody who is an entity. And we've got to use some methods for that because otherwise nobody's going to help us. Everybody believes that they're an entity. I mean, nobody's going to help us do this other than the Buddha. And he showed us methods of doing that. So we have to use some method. But of course we'll only do that if it has become quite clear to us, and I hope it has to everybody, that Dukkha is strictly based on that self-delusion. For the simple reason, and I'm going to use this sentence probably more than once, if there's nobody there who's going to have dukkha. It's impossible for, for a non-existing entity to have something. So we need to have that intention of trying to find ways and means of getting at this absolute truth that within this person that we see and touch, that we hear and that tastes and does all these wonderful things, that that is nothing but a phenomena. So we use the first aggregate of form, body. It's always used, the word form is used so much, but let's use the word body because it makes it much easier. And we divide it up into the four elements. Earth, solidity, the uh, heaviness, that which we can actually touch, that which appears to be static, which it isn't. Then we have fire, the temperature of the body, which includes also the destruction. Fire destroys, it's our digestion, it's our aging process. Then we have 
water, almost 80%, which is not only the liquidity, but it's also the binding element. If you have flour, put water in, you get dough. It binds these cells together. You can feel it in the saliva, it's in the eyes, in the nose, you can uh, see it in the urine, it's in the blood, everywhere where there's liquidity, you've got water. Lots of it. That's why we have to keep on drinking, otherwise the body dehydrates. One has to drink far more importantly than one has to eat. Because the solidity element, the earth element, is much smaller in us than the water element. It doesn't look like that, does it? We all look like earth elements. We look all very solid, and yet almost 80% water. Interesting. Optical illusion, as usual. Optical illusion that everybody is separate. Optical illusion that everybody is a person in their own right. All optical illusions. Unfortunately, we can't put on different glasses. We've got to put on a different mind. And that's what the Buddha is trying to help us do. So we have these four elements. I haven't said the wind one yet. Wind, air, breath. And it's also movement. Now breath is essential to be alive. And I have already said, and I'll say this again for everyone, when you're outside, it's very important to become aware of elements as they exist around you and within you. When your foot touches the ground, you have earth element touching earth element. Try to let yourself in that heaviness and solidity of the foot flow into the heaviness and solidity of the earth that you're touching. Try to find that togetherness. Same with the wind that hits the face or the body. It's the same as the wind that you're breathing in. See the togetherness. That alone may help to reduce the separation feeling that we have from each other, that we have from nature around us, and that separation feeling, of course, being based on our self-delusion, again and again puts us personally and the world in general into strife. We're all separate and we've all got to protect ourselves. But in reality, it's another delusion. We're not separate. We're earth, fire, water and air. Now water, obviously, you can feel it within you also <coughs> as the heaviness. Water is very heavy. So you can feel it as the heaviness that comes down on the ground as you put the foot down. And this water element you can see around you in the tree, it has to be sap, otherwise it can't live. You can see in the dew, wherever you can find it. If there's raindrops, connect to them. Not only will it help to get the separation a little bit less strong, but it will also help to reduce that feeling of, this is me, and all these bits and pieces are me. Now, the other thing that helps... <coughs> is also this, what I have suggested already as a meditation practice. Opening the zipper in front, taking all the bits and pieces out, looking at them separately and saying, where is me? 
And obviously, in all that mess, one can't find oneself. But then, of course, putting it back in, and then putting the zipper up again, then it's me again. But not only that, it's very interesting to know that there are several bits and pieces within us that could well be taken out and we can still keep living. We can live without the appendix. We can live with one kidney. We can live without the gallbladder. So we can live without um, almost half of our intestines. So it's very interesting. We can cut out bits and pieces and still be alive. So where is this me in this body? But not only that, we can put spare parts in. That's the newest invention. We've got spare parts. So when it's still in the formaldehyde, in the bottle, in the uh, um, surgery, obviously it doesn't belong to me, but the minute we put it inside here, then part of me. How does this all happen? It's all happening in the mind. It's not happening in reality. We're making it up that way. Why do we make that up? That's an ingrained and age-old delusion which happens over and over again until we finally break through that barrier and see reality. So we have the method. Taking ourselves apart into bits and pieces. Don't forget the face, the bones, and the skin. Probably all wrinkled up and there's nothing in there to hold it uh, up. And in the elements which are also quite well defined in walking meditation. When you lift the foot, air element. When it comes down, the heaviness of water, touch, earth. You can do one of them, you can do two of them, you can do three of them, you can do all four, the temperature that you feel in your foot. But air and earth might be the easiest in walking meditation. Very useful. The more we become imbued with the understanding, first it's just an understanding of that this body is just a phenomena like all other bodies, not just human, all nature, heavenly bodies, everything else are phenomena consisting of four elements in different proportions. The easier it will be for us to feel one day that there's nobody there. And when we feel that there's nobody there, who could possibly have a problem? If there's nobody there, no problems. So that's the first aggregate, and this is a technical term. And since this is a science of the mind, it does have technical terms. And although I try to avoid too many of them, some of them are helpful. And so we have samsara as a technical term for the round of birth and death. We have dukkha for everything that's unsatisfactory. And we have the aggregates as the five bits and pieces of which we consist. <coughs> First, the body. Then we have four bits of the mind. And there it is very important to get an understanding but also a personal experience of them. And I've mentioned that in connection with the unpleasant sensations which arise in the sitting position. That the first thing that happens is the sense contact. In the sitting position, it's a touch contact. Now, the sense contact can be any one of the five senses, of course. 
and I've already mentioned also in the seven-day course, to try that. See that when you're outside, for instance, or even in here, it doesn't matter where you are, that if you see something, try to become aware that a feeling arises. Unfortunately, we're usually in such a hurry about everything and have very little patience, restlessness being one of the last fetters to go, that we don't notice anything. All we notice is our reaction. So instead of that, let's go back and see all four bits and pieces. Sense consciousness. First thing that happens is the contact that we make. Now that's also very helpful if we divide that into three parts. This is another way of the Buddha's teaching, the way of analysis. Not using this whole person that sits here and says, this is me, my name is so-and-so, and I have such and such qualities and all the rest of it, but dividing one up so that we get nearer and nearer to the truth. And when we get to the truth one day, then there is bliss, there is happiness. Nothing can touch someone who has no feeling of me. So the division that we can make is this. There is the sense base, which is I, ear, taste, touch, smell. Sense base, right? We all have it. Then there is the sense object, which is something that we see, for instance. We see something in front of us. That's the sense object. In this case, the eye object. Now, when the sense base and the sense object meet, there is the sense consciousness seeing. That's the contact we make. We make these, these two contact each other. The base and the object contact, and you have sense consciousness seeing. If that base is not working or eyes are closed or there's nothing there, nothing happens. So this is how our sensory perception arises out of those three parts. So we have as the first thing that happens is our sense consciousness. Then comes the feeling. And this feeling that arises can be pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And the neutral ones we usually don't know. So we are confined to pleasant and unpleasant. And because we like it pleasant and don't want it unpleasant, we do what I've already described, we cling to our sense pleasures. And we are quite irate usually if someone disturbs our sense pleasures. And we get quite irate if somebody doesn't agree to help us to have them. So, but we don't become aware of this because we are so quick in labeling, which is perception, saying this is a clock, and then reacting to that. Reacting to it, saying, I wonder whether it's actually showing the right time. I think she rang the bell too late last time. That would be the next thing that's happening, the mental formation. But we're usually only concerned with that, with the mental formation. The rest we don't even notice. So I wanted you to become experientially aware of those four steps. It's not difficult. 
hearing is easier than seeing. Because with the hearing, it's very often easier to become aware of the feeling which arises, especially if it's a very unpleasant sound. We can become more easily aware of the unpleasant feeling and then the perception and then the reaction to that than with the seeing. So it's very worthwhile to become aware of these four steps because by becoming aware of them, we are again dividing ourselves up into the bits and pieces that we consist of and we get a little nearer to the point where we can one day say, I'm ready to give up this self-delusion. Having said that, it doesn't mean that one gives it up right away, but at least we've said it and felt it and thought it, which is an enormous step, even that far. Having doing it then is not as easy as it may have sounded just now. Now, we have another thing which we need to look at. So the sense bases I've explained, right? The sense bases of which we very often talk about six, but in this case I'd prefer to talk about the five senses because the mental formation as a reaction is the sixth one, the, the mind working. So we have five sense bases, right? Eye, ear, and so on. And then we get the objects, and as we get the objects and they contact each other, we have the consciousness. So that's the second line of this, the elements and the sense bases. But we have to look at something else in this respect, namely, and how all this stuff arises and continues. And there, the Buddha says, it comes about through nutriment. Now, the body, of course, has physical food, but the sensory perception comes about through contact. And our mental formations have volition in them. That means our intention, which is our karma-making. And the consciousness, which is our, in our senses, our sense consciousness, is that which the mind describes what it is. So we have nutriment on every level. We don't just have food. That keeps the body going. But the senses only keep going through contact. And our mental formations only keep going through our volitions. And our consciousness is part of that whole aspect so that the mind can actually refer to what it is experiencing. So these are the, the nutriments which keep this whole me intact. And the consciousness is also our nutriment for rebirth, the rebirth consciousness. So we have food, contact, volition, and sense consciousness or rebirth consciousness. These are the, called the four nutriments. And we have had experiments with astronauts where there was an experiment of not having any sense contact. It was tried out how long it is possible for a human being to last in a chamber where there was nothing to see, nothing to feel, nothing to taste, nothing to touch, and it's an, 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 or smell, and it's an enormously difficult endeavor. 
and there was a certain time limit that nobody could go beyond because we can't live without this nutriment. So we have to have the contact of the senses in order to stay sane, in order for the mind to have the consciousness which it can then resolve into reactions. So then in order to keep the body alive, of course we know that we have to have food, food and drink. That's quite, e quite easy to know. But on the other hand, knowing that there has to be all this contact will also help us to see that this person, me, is really something that has to be fed all the time. And that will break up again this solidity of the person. Now, the Buddha said that if we understand seven points and have three investigations, we will be able to relieve ourselves from this self-delusion. The self-delusion, which is the only public and private enemy that we can ever find. If the whole world didn't have it, the whole world would look totally different, totally different. But this is, of course, a totally impossibility. doesn't exist. But there are always people who get away from that self-delusion. It's not an impossibility. So there are seven points and three investigations, and that's imp important to know because these are all things which we can do experientially. They're not theory that we can just listen to, but they are experiential factors. So we have... The first point is that this body <coughs> consists of the four elements. Now I've explained that to you. But you have to actually experience it. So you can do that in the sweeping, which is quite easy to feel the hardness, the uh, um, temperature of the body. You can feel probably movement in the body. And it's not difficult to become aware of the wind, the air, the movement, and of the uh, water element within the mouth, nose, and eyes. But by the same token, outside, which I've already ex explained, how to become aware of the elements in oneself. That's one, one way of understanding the four. The next thing to understand is this nutriment, which I've just um, explained. And again, also, with the nutriment that comes to us, to be aware of its arising and ceasing. How our sense contact arises and ceases and arises and ceases. So when you're outside and there is sense contact, which there has to be, become aware of the mental arising and ceasing. Because if we see that in ourselves, we are almost there to see that we are not solid. We're totally translucent, transparent, moving, never in one spot at any one time. There's always arising and ceasing. And with the sense contact, it's not so difficult to become aware. But one has to put one's mind in that direction. We can only become aware of what we actually want to know. If we put our mind on it, we can become aware of that.
And then the other point, which I've already made, is that the pleasure in our senses is also rising and ceasing and keeps us occupied in a way which is not of any value in finding absolute truth. And one of the great miseries is the fact that when there's this pleasure of the senses, we think this is terrible, absolutely terrible. I've got a pain here and I've got a pain there and this person doesn't talk nice to me and that person has, is not there anymore and we think it's absolutely awful. And when there's pleasure of the senses, then we think that's our birthright. And if somebody should stand in the weight of them, then we think that's dreadful. It's all totally deluded. Senses are for survival. They also bring pleasure, naturally. But that's not their function. That's only one of the qualities. So when we get away from that idea that they have to bring pleasure then we have seen something very important and not become displeased when the senses don't bring pleasure. Which means that if there's a pain, there's a pain. It's an unpleasant feeling. If we see the impermanence of everything that arises within us, it will help us to become more open to the fact that this is not a personal entity but just a phenomena reacting. This reaction that we're constantly doing, which brings us sometimes a great discomfort, that reaction is something which we can then do by choice and no longer by impulse if impermanence becomes clearer to us so this is one of the injunctions I've already told you what to do with the elements I've mentioned the nutriments and you can check that out the sense contacts to check whatever arises within oneself to check whatever is out there whether all of that is impermanent. Use impermanence as a sort of um, investigation into whatever you can think of. Thought, feeling, breath, body, other bodies, day, night, the time, wherever you look, use it as a check. Do that a whole day long whenever you're not sitting in meditation. And it may become so clear that everything is moving that it, you can translate it to yourself. This is an optical illusion that we are solid. I often have said, and I'll say it again, look at your old photo albums and you'll see that optical illusion. A totally optical illusion. There's nothing there. It's constantly moving. So then, these are all points which lead one to the realization of absolute truth. So what we're using them for is a practice path. 
Don't misunderstand that one now has to be, be totally enlightened the minute one knows all these things. Nothing like it. We have to use them as practice points. And impermanence is one of the most important ones. But again, the elements, the nutriments, all these help us. And they are rising and ceasing, which belongs to the impermanence of our sense contacts. Sense contact being nutriment. All belongs together. And the other thing is that if we can, for instance, as a practice, look at a desire we have, any kind of desire, and detach ourselves from it. Not follow through on it, but just let it drop. Whichever kind of desire it is. Getting something or getting rid of something. Wanting to change something, wanting it with different wanting, whatever it may be, dropping it. That is the practice of detachment because these five aggregates are called the five aggregates of clinging. So the only way to get rid of the clinging is to detach from them. And the desires which arise are the desires for the sense pleasure which bring the pleasant feeling. So when we have that desire, dropping it. Just in a situation such as this, it shouldn't be all too difficult because the desires may not be uh, may not be possible to fulfill them here anyway. So we have to drop them. But see them clearly and then go, phew, let them go. The detachment is that which will one day make it possible not to have that self-delusion. As long as we're attached to these five aggregates and call them me, and the Buddha will talk about this the whole length through in this sutta, so long we are, of course, not only identifying with them, but we like them. We want this. This is me. I want it. It's nice even though it's got this problem or that problem, but I'm clever enough to solve that so then everything will be fine. One tries and tries and tries again, and um, maybe one day one is willing to give up trying to solve it on a worldly basis. When one is willing to tr give up trying on a worldly basis, then this all makes much more sense. Then one can try on this basis. So these the four of the mind I repeat them the sense consciousness the feeling perception and mental formation the mental formation is also where we make karma it's also the reaction it's our volitional mental formation these five constitute this supposed me because we're attached to them particularly we want the pleasant and we don't want the unpleasant so we, if we take ourselves apart into these bits and pieces, we can first of all see that none of them contain a me. Impossible. There's nobody there in that. Is there a me in the feeling? Why am I thinking it's mine? Is there a me in this body? Where is it sitting? Is it sitting in the, in the gallbladder or is it sitting in the lungs? or is it sit, Where is it sitting, this me? or sitting, maybe it's a sitting behind the forehead. That's a very, very popular spot for the me. Where? Is it really sitting there? Check it out and see. Check it against the elements. 
and check it against the food, the nutriments, check the senses against the contacts and see where is this me. And then you will see more and more that our attachment to these is also very selective. We don't like the unpleasant feeling at all. We only like the pleasant one. So if we were actually the feeling, we only like half of ourselves. The other half we don't want. And that's, of course, also one of the underlying reasons why people find it difficult to love themselves. Because they only like one half of themselves. Absurd, isn't it? Hmm? Sounds absurd, anyway. <laughs> There's one other point. There are seven points, and I've only given you six. And the, uh, the seventh point is actually the Noble Eightfold Path, which brings us to this understanding. And I'll leave that for another time, because that's a long description also. So <coughs> I'm going to repeat this, because this is a, quite a... Uh, elaborate explanation of the Buddha. To understand form, use the four elements. To understand the nutriment that comes to the senses, look at the arising and ceasing of the sense consciousness in any one of the senses, right? To lose that idea of satisfaction in the form, in the body. To lose that idea of satisfaction take it apart to become aware of the fact that it isn't really pleasure that we get through our senses and our body and our mind see the other side of it and accept it see both sides and see that the pleasure also disappears so see the dukkha of it and the only escape is to know this impermanence from the ground up. Now, the three investigations which he has offered as an insight into this are, again, the elements. We can see that this is very important to um, have that experiential understanding of those elements. And it doesn't need a great deal of concentration. It just needs a bit of understanding, that's all. Become aware of those elements through any way. Being out there in the sunshine, okay, that's warm. Body warm, that's warm. Same thing. This is part of body, the temperature. Become aware of the sense base, sense object, and therefore sense consciousness, which is called three times six, the 18 sense spheres. So if you come across anything in any Buddhist book about 18 sense spheres and you wonder what you're missing because you've only got five, it means the six senses, including mind, the base, eye, ear, nose, and so on, the object, and the consciousness. Three times six is 18 a typical Abhidhamma explanation done over and over again. Sometimes it's only called the 12 sense spheres, six times two, the base and 
the consciousness, the eye and the seeing, and they leave out the sense object. So either way, there's a sense fears. Very important investigation. The nutriment, the contact, the arising, ceasing, the constant coming and going. And then the dependent arising. These are the three investigations. Now, dependent arising is not just a discourse. It's not just a picture on the wall. It's not just a theoretical explanation of how we come to be. Dependent arising is the cause and effect of everything that we experience. Now, in order to see, we have to have the eye that's functioning. We have to have something to see. When we make contact, we have seen. There is cause, this cause, that cause, and then the effect. In order to know arising and ceasing, we have to put our mind on it. The mind base has to be directed there. And then seeing that, understanding that, and being aware of that means that our mind base has put its thought process there. So the mind base is the base, the object is arising and ceasing, and knowing it is that what brings us to that awareness. So we have cause and effect in everything. Nutriment is the cause for the, for the body. And this dependent arising now needs to be investigated in your individual meditation time or whenever you wish. See how you have come about and how you react and what's going on, where is the cause. And if you can't find the cause, never mind, look for the next thing. Everything has cause and effect. There is no such thing that doesn't have cause and then has only effect. So whatever it is that is inside arising, nasty or nice, loving or hating, look for the cause. Arising and ceasing. So we have three investigations which the Buddha has said will take us to the ultimate absolute truth. For the body, the elements. For the senses, the sense spheres, to understand how it all comes about. And for all of them, depend arising. I hope you can remember all that. Maybe I'll just make a short resume of what you need to practice. Okay? Because as it's all very interesting and all very well and it's all very philosoph philosophical and wonderful, but it doesn't help anything unless one has actually done it. One has to do it. Wisdom is the understood experience. <coughs> These experiences which I have outlined here, which are the Buddha's words, are common to all of us constantly, but we don't understand them. And that's why we have the self-delusion. It's the understood experience which makes all the difference. So what is being said here is that we have a succession of aggregates. They come and they go. We have elements and sense bases. And because they continue uninterruptedly, we have samsara. And samsara is equivalent to dukkha. So if we take that for a given that, we're, that this is dukkha, that we're living in, and if we have any objection to that, of course, then we don't need to practice this. But if we are in agreement with Dukkha, and most people are, then 
we need to have a look. We have to look at our aggregates that we consist of. First, we have the body. And as we have the body, we look at the elements, which you now remember, I'm sure, which is earth, fire, water, air, and see whether that is really the makeup of the body. And as you experience that, you don't just think it, you experience it outside, in nature, where earth, fire, water, air is available easily. And you do that any which way you want. It is experientially possible and not very difficult. Knowing those elements has two results. One is the lessening of the self-delusion and the second one is the lessening of the self-separation from everything else. So that's body, that's elements. Then we have the senses. If we take five, which makes it a little easier, we become aware of any one of those five. Seeing or hearing might be the easiest, but tasting is also not so difficult. We become aware of that and recognize that there are three things happening. The sense base, the sense object, and therefore the sense consciousness, which means we're taking ourselves apart. We don't take it for granted that what we see we like or dislike, and what we hear we like or dislike. We know that there are three things happening. Then, having known that these three things are happening, then we become aware of the fact that this sense contact that we make, which brings about the sense consciousness, is constantly arising and ceasing. And that should help us greatly. And then we look for the causes for all that which arises and ceases, whatever it is. Look anywhere for the moon, the stars, the thoughts, the breath, whatever it is. See it as impermanence. Now that's, in a nutshell, the practice. And that's also, in a nutshell, what we consist of. And that's also, in a nutshell, how we get rid of all these delusions which plague us and get to an understanding of a reality which is totally different from the one that we have lived in so far. And when we get to that understanding of that reality and the experience of it, of that absolute reality, then there's nothing to ever plague us again. So we need to practice. Enough for one evening, huh? Okay, have some questions? This is the time for them. Mm-hmm. After experiencing absolute reality, you say there's nothing to ever plague us again. Mm-hmm. That would seem to imply that that is permanent. Nibbana is permanent, yeah. It's the only thing that's permanent. Full Nibbana is permanent. Because there's nobody there to be impermanent. Yes? Um, you talked a lot about uh, doing investigations. I guess I have a question on, on the jhanas. Do they help? Uh, you have to distinguish between calm and insight, between samatha and vipassana. Jhanas are samatha, and investigation is vipassana. Samatha is the means, vipassana is the goal. So calm is the means, insight is the goal. Without calm, there will never be any pure, a real pure 
and absolute insight. The mind just can't do it. You can compare the mind to an ocean with waves in it. When you have an ocean with waves, all you can see is the waves. But if the ocean calms down and you have um, water which is totally calm, you can see through that to the bottom and you can see what's at the bottom. As long as there are waves, all you see is the waves and the form. And that's what's happening in the mind. A mind that has waves and f- waves of thought, feeling, reaction in it cannot come to the bottom of reality. So calm is the means and inside is the goal. So jhanas bring enormous insight after one has had them, not while one is having them. While one is having them, there is calm and serenity and tranquility, and after one has had them, there is an enormous um, possibility for insight, and they also give the mind the ability to investigate on a level of non-distraction, on a not intellectual, discursive level, but on a level of becoming aware of what's going on within oneself. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> hmm? Yes. Um, what, is it, what is it that uh, that knows mind as a mind? Yes. Uh, there's a question like that here. Someone of the suttas and the Buddha said, that is a wrong question. All you have to ask is, what is the cause of mind? That can be answered. But not what knows or no, who knows. I can bring you the sutta. I just read it today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. One of the disciples asked the Buddha that. There's no, nothing to ask like that. Can but, I yes. <laughs> yes. What do you mean what? You have to say who at least. Uh, <laughs> at least who. Yeah, you're going to have to find that out. So all this practicing that I'm describing here, so all the things that you're supposed to be doing, you're going to have to find that out. And it's not what you go. At least you have to say who. I mean, you're a person, aren't you? So yeah, that person has to be called somebody like, who is doing this? Who's meditating? Hmm? Well, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> That's what all this practice is all about, to get away from that. Huh? Sorry? There's, there's no yeah, who's meditating? Why don't I go home, huh? <laughs> you can't go along that quest. That line of questioning is an impossibility. Right? There's no way you can get at it that way. You've got to do it the way I've been ex- describing it. You've got to investigate it just exactly the way I've been describing it. That investigation that where on that questioning line gets you nowhere that is against the brick wall. I can hit your head against the brick wall and what you're going to do here is to hurt yourself. So this is a line of investigation, which means taking it apart in its bits and pieces, seeing cause and effect. This is the only way you'll ever get at it. <coughs> but what you're doing is uh, very common. You're in good company. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. I became aware of seeing today at lunchtime because I was looking at something and I didn't. My mind couldn't tell me what it was. 
Mm-hmm. And suddenly, the gap, that gap between seeing and sense contact became apparent to me because I was staring at this thing and I just... Not the gap between seeing and sense contact. You were making sense contact, but the gap between the actual contact and then the uh, perception, the labeling. Yeah, yeah there's the gap. All right. Yeah. yeah. But Wonderful. Yes, that's good. Um, could you become aware of any feeling at all? Yeah. The meal. It was on the other Well, there is a feeling, and it could have been, of course, neutral. And because it's, uh, it probably was, mm-hmm. um, it was neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And this is very difficult to uh, notice, uh, neutral. Um, this is a very interesting because when you get it like that, you can see that. See, an enlightened person also sees, right? The feeling is automatic, but we don't have to label. We can stop right then and there. If we would like to have some peace and quiet in the mind, we don't have to label. And that, of course, then eliminates the reaction. And as it eliminates the reaction, it also eliminates the desire for that which is pleasant. So we can do that. You did it accidentally. But now that you know you can do it, you can try it again. Try it somewhere. I went on to then try and invent a story to try and... I caught my mind trying to, trying to do it, even though I couldn't. Sorry, what was that? You were trying to do it again, or what? From, well, from that point. Yeah. Rather than just feeling neutral and dropping it. You were trying well, to... My mind came back to it again because it was something I couldn't make a story about. Right. So it was attracted to it again. Then wanted to find out what it was. Okay, mother, try the opposite. <coughs> Exactly that opposite. Now that you know this is possible, see something, the feeling is automatic, there's nothing you can do about that. Our hand also has feelings. And then, don't label. It's not easy, but try. Because you see, the eye only sees, this eye here, only sees color and form. It's a, it's a mind that explains it. And we can't stop right there. So it's very good to try that. Yeah, that's an interesting ex- experience. So you have the feeling, and uh, then say you get, well actually you get the reaction, and then as you suggested you back up and you say now I will feel, and then carry on with the reaction if it's all that necessary. There is a funny kind of uh, sensation at this stage, which makes me believe that as in a thumbprint, there is a kind of personality to that. To which? To the reaction? All of these things are done by me. <laughs> yes, well, of course, that is the self-delusion. Thumbprints are all different. Are yeah. all responses just that much different, or really not? Our reactions are different, certainly. Certainly. The uh, mental formation which arises out of seeing something uh, is different. Otherwise, uh, um, 
everybody would fall in love with the same woman or the same man. But luckily that doesn't happen. You know, one thinks that this one is wonderful and the other one thinks that one's wonderful. And they look at that first one and say, for heaven's sakes, how could she ever see anything in him? <laughs> <laughs> of course, our reactions are different, certainly. But feelings, they're all the same. And the feelings are not all the same because the first fellow you see, you think, hmm. And the second one sees the fellow and says, hmm. So one feeling is pleasant and one feeling is unpleasant. And they're seeing the same thing. We have to get down in the elements before we start getting that, as you said. The elements are the same in everybody. Our, our sense contacts create three kinds of different feelings. We can have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? It creates different perception. We can name it something different. I think I said this already last week. You know it's a clock. A two-year-old thinks it's a building block. It's the same object, okay? So the labeling is different. And our reaction to that is totally different. You may be totally disinterested in this clock, right? But the two-year-old will think, oh, great, I have that, right? So the reactions are, all these things are on a tendency, memory, and um, uh, based on tendencies, memories, and underlying um, qualities. So they do not have exactly the same result all the time, but they are always happening. All four are always happening. But then, of course, you can have exactly the same reaction as, uh, you know, 20 other people, but not like the same reaction as everybody. I mean, there are not that many different reactions possible. Those of you who uh, have anything to do with computers uh, could use that as a possibility of understanding that when the button is pressed, something happens, and within us, it's always the same thing over and over again. Always those four bits are happening. And sometimes they, they light up green and sometimes red and sometimes it's, uh, they get also confused and go, go interlocking, but uh, there's always the same thing happening over and over again. And it's very easy with an unpleasant feeling in the sitting position. It's very easy to see that we're reacting in a stereotyped manner. Anything else? Yes? Um, reacting and labeling are, are the same, yes? No. The labeling is a perception, and the reacting is a mental formation. And that's the one you make karma with. Up to perception, you make no karma. When you see something and you feel badly and then you say this is ugly, you haven't made the bad karma. But when you react with disliking it, then you have made karma. Because I was looking at something today and I was just trying to look at it without... Mm -hmm. and, and after I looked at it, there's something like, oh, this is beautiful. But um, beautiful is not really the reality of what it is. No, that's your perception of it. That's your label. You're giving it a label. And then your mental formation, your reaction may be, I want it, or I'd like to see it again, or where did they get it, or whatever. That is then your reaction. You're giving it a label of beautiful. That's your perception. That's fine. But the reaction comes after that. 
Did you get that? Did you get a reaction? Yeah. Because it was beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. Because but it gave I, a nice feeling. But I'm also thinking if you, if one is, um, how does one say teach a child to, to see, to, to, um, how, I mean, we all in a sense teach our children how to see. Mm-hmm. And they probably see without us teaching them. But how do you, how, do, how does one do that? To teach them this way? Yeah. To teach them not to. In order to teach a child to have an enlightened reaction, one has to be enlightened oneself. And most parents are not. (laughs) So, you see, a child, by the way, uh, has a different perception and reaction up to a certain age. It's not the same as what we have. And uh, to try and teach them this enlightened uh, or this absolute truth, one has to be totally imbued with that absolute truth, and even then, I don't think it's possible. Most enlightened people probably don't want to have children. Uh, All of them. That's part of being enlightened. (laughs) But the Buddha also had a child before he was in life. <laughs> so having a child does not prevent one from becoming enlightened later. <laughs> but this sort of thing is usually is not something that one teaches small children. They have to first find their footing in the world. And uh, some children are quite um, more apparently... Uh, sort of geared towards seeing things in a different way and others are more materially geared this is past karma happening to them but you see you can't give up something that you haven't got if you haven't got a self-identity you can't give it up so children actually in the beginning years create a self-identity for themselves with the help of everybody around of course and only then can we give it up one day so this is not uh, a teaching for children. In fact, you can't become a monk if you're under 20. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. You say that you can stop after the feeling and not make the perception. If you make the perception, can you stop at that point or does that automatically go into mental formation? It's so close to it that it usually goes. It's uh, because the mind has started working already on that level. Because when it perceives, when it labels, it's already working. So it's uh, difficult. It's um, easier to stop after feeling and more useful. Because also it gives you the chance to have the non-thinking mind in everyday life. And the non-thinking mind in everyday life is a great help to the meditation and makes life also more pleasant. You know, the thinking mind is always getting into trouble. Well, maybe almost always in getting into trouble. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> so this is a very good um, uh, practice thing to try and see whether you can stop. It's not easy, but um, it's very worthwhile to just see and to just hear 
and not go into the ramifications of it. And then we know that we don't have to respond if we don't want to. We can choose to respond. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Have forgiveness in your heart for anything that you think you've done wrong. Forgive yourself for all the old and past commissions and omissions. They're long gone. Understand that you were a different person and this one is forgiving that one that you were. Feel that forgiveness filling you, enveloping you with a sense of warmth, and ease. Think of your parents. Forgive them for anything that you have ever blamed them for. Understand that they too are different now. Let this forgiveness fill them, surround them, knowing in your heart that this is your most wonderful way of togetherness. Think of your nearest and dearest people 
Forgive them for anything that you think they have done wrong or are doing wrong at this time. Fill them with your forgiveness. Let them feel that you accept. Let that forgiveness fill them realizing that this is your expression of love. Now think of your friends. Forgive them for anything that you have disliked about them. Let your forgiveness reach out to them so that they can be filled with it, embraced by it. Think of the people you know, whoever they might be, and forgive them all for whatever it is that you have blamed them for, that you have judged them for, that you have disliked. Let your forgiveness fill their hearts, surround them, envelop them, be your expression of love for them. Now think of any special person whom you really need to forgive. Towards whom you still have resentment, rejection, dislike. Forgive him or her fully. Remember that everyone has dukkha. Let this forgiveness come from your heart. Reach out to that person, complete and total.
think of any one person or any situation or any group of people whom you are condemning, blaming, disliking, forgive them completely. Let your forgiveness be your expression of unconditional love. They may not do the right things, but human beings have dukkha. And your heart needs the forgiveness in order to have purity of love. Have a look again and see whether there's any one or anything anywhere in the world towards whom you have blame or condemnation and forgive the people or the person so that there's no separation in your heart. Now put your attention back on yourself and recognize the goodness in you, the effort you're making. 